Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Tyler and I am an alcoholic. <laughs> Thanks for having me here tonight. I am um, welcome to your first A&A meeting. I'm sorry that you have to listen to me tonight. Um, but uh, I'm from Richmond, Virginia. My home group is the Jaywalkers group. And uh, we have a Tuesday night big book study um, closed. And then on Friday night, we have a, our big speaker meeting. And um, So if you're ever, you know, in Richmond, come see us. We'd love to have you. My sobriety date is October 13th, 1992. So... If John doesn't drive me to drink while I'm here and no bad shit happens when I go home to Richmond, I'll have 25 years in a week, which is unbelievable considering how long it took me to get here and for it to stick for me to say, all right, I'll drink the Kool-Aid, you know? Um, so I'm a Navy brat. My, um, I come from a long upstanding line of neurotics and drunks and, mental defects and uh, grew up in that kind of environment. And uh, I came into my first AA meeting in 1982 when I was 15 years old. And I'd only been drinking a short period of time, just about a year. And my alcoholism, though, Something just left my body. <laughs> I don't know what it was. They're so loud. <laughs> my character defects are loud. John has been working on me hard today because I have uh, the last couple of years have been really interesting. There's definitely no arriving once you get some time in recovery. There's no. Like, I've got it now. That is, you know, which I used to think. Anyway, um, so, fuck, what is going on? <laughs> Look, we need to get this away. Too bad there's not stuff up here I want to steal because it would be really easy. Anyway, I was a big thief for a very long time, too. I loved the ceiling. I, I used to tell people that was my first... Uh, Obsession of the mind. I, I loved it. Um, it definitely solved my problem when I was younger. Um, it was a huge sense of ease and comfort to get one over and to take something from somebody else and make it mine. Uh, because I definitely never had enough when I was growing up in my mind. And still today, that can happen. Um, but anyway, so... Navy brat, um, a little insane, really started to hit its peak when I was around 13 years old. That's when I, I had a social drinking period and that's when I would take sips off my parents' rum and cokes. That was pretty much my social drinking period. When I had my first real drunk, it was over. It was, it was done. And, uh, I loved the way that it made me feel. It changed. It was like, you know, I hear people talk about, that kind of drunk is like a spiritual awakening for them because, you know, everything changed and changed in a good way. And 
that's how I felt when I had my first real drunk. Um, I was at peace with him. You know, the incredible noise in my head stopped. The hole in my gut was gone. The fear was gone. I was happy. I wasn't depressed. Um, it was wonderful. And I got sick. I threw up, engaged in immoral behavior, got into a lot of trouble, but I could not wait to do it again. You know what I mean? Just could not wait. And because I wanted to feel that way all of the time. And literally, I remember laying in my bed going, how, how, can, I do, how can I feel this way all of the time? That's desperately what I wanted. And that's what I set out to do. And when you're doing that, when you're 15, you're going to get into 14, you're going to get into a, a lot of trouble because there, there are things that you got to be willing to do to get it. And I was willing to do them. And that's when the, the conversation started about, you know, what, what are we going to do about Valerie? You know, she was just a petty thief and a liar. But now we've got all this other stuff going on. And just in that year period, I was labeled an ungovernable by the state of Florida, habitual truant, habitual runaway, in and out of juvenile detention centers, ju juvie, uh, juvie jail, transient youth centers, all that stuff. And, just, and those are direct consequences um, from getting caught of doing what I got to do in order to feel that way as much as and as often as possible. And so I got into a lot of trouble and, you know, I started, my parents started sending me to therapists and to shrinks and, you know, I've been confirmed twice because the first one didn't take. I've been saved numerous times. I've got Episcopalians and Baptists, you know, in my family. So I've had, you know, the evangelical saving of my soul stuff, laying of hands, trying to get the devil out of me and, um, you know, and all that stuff was great, but it doesn't, it, it never solves a problem. And it just made me wildly uncomfortable and resentful. And I really believed, you know, that I was misunderstood and that people just needed to leave me alone and I'd be fine. I still want you to pay my bills, but leave me alone. You know, let me do what I want to do. You're oppressing me. And, um, so one of the therapists that my parents had sent me to see that I was smoking weed with, by the way, um, so I felt hugely betrayed by this, told my parents that I had an alcohol and drug problem, and I was put into a treatment center, and that's where I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was in 1982, and I was 15, and um, it's when, you know, insurance was really good, where, you know, you could stay for a long period of time, and it was like a country club, and it was down in Jacksonville Beach, and I mean, they gave you good drugs while you were there and, you know, three squares and you got to go to leather making art class shop and sit in a jacuzzi and play badminton and hike trails. It was great. And um, I loved it. I actually came to love being hospitalized because it was a break from, I mean, life was unmanageable and overwhelming to me then. And so I loved being hospitalized because I just, I got out of the little responsibility that I did have because it was just too much. And, um, I was not a good treatment center participant though. When you're there, you know, you get to move up levels and days if you behave yourself and do what you're supposed to do. And I was up to all kinds of shenanigans and treatment 
having drugs snuck in. There's nothing like dropping acid while you're in treatment. I'll tell you that right now. And, you know, sneaking out to go buy, uh, get beer. And, you know, and back then you could get people to buy it for you easily. This is drinking age was still legal age was 18. And anyway, so I was not a good treatment center participant. And, um, so when I left treatment after being there three months, I was on level one, day one. Because I don't follow the rules. The rules do not apply to me, especially when I'm on vacation. And the good thing, though, that was that was that happened, like I said, was that I was introduced to AA. Now, when I got out of tr- treatment, I had to go to those A and A meetings. Um, I hated it. You know, my mommy would drop me off at the little clubhouse in Orange Park, Florida, and um, I'd go in there and. Back then, in that area, there were not a lot of young people in AA. So I go in there, and it's, you know, this rickety old clubhouse. And this is when you could still smoke in meetings. So there's like, you know, this six-foot thing of smoke hanging off the ceiling. And there's all these old dudes. I called them the crusty team. And I just was like, oh, my God, my life is over. It is over. And I'd sit in those meetings, and those old guys, bless their heart, they would say to me things like, you're too young to be an alcoholic, you know, go home, turn your life around. We don't, you don't have to do what we did, you know, go be a good girl and do what your parents say and go back to school and, you know, trying to, you know, straighten me up. And I mean, I just gave them the finger. So I, not outwardly, inwardly, and because I'm sneaky, you know what I mean? So this is what I did to get even. I'm like, I'll show you. And I stole a little key to their little clubhouse, and that's where I take my friends to go drinking, was at the AA clubhouse. And I also figured, since they weren't smart enough to lock up their money, they deserved to have it stolen. So I would steal their money because they they weren't smart enough to lock it away correctly. And that was totally fine by me. I had no problem with that whatsoever, which is what's frightening. And I would sit in those meetings and just be angry that I was there. Angry, angry, angry that I was there. And eventually those guys were like, Jesus, you know, because I was like a revolving door for about two years and just in and out, in and out, in and out. And I'd go running back to AA every time I got into trouble or got caught doing something. And I'd have to go back to those meetings and, um, one of the last times, and this is about, too, the amazingness of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous because, I mean, I was stealing their money. I was taking people to drink at their clubhouse. And one night, this old guy, Larry, stopped by the clubhouse. And we heard him coming up the stairs, and we're all hightailing it out the back. And I saw him, and he saw me. And, you know, I avoided that place for a while. I knew what was going on. And eventually, I got ran back into AA because of my behavior. And, um, it, nobody said a word to me except, sit down, kid, glide your back. And there was no, none of this was glide your back, have a seat. Now, they did change what they did with the money. I did discover because <laughs> I had to check that out. You know, I did. Um, but I was welcomed back there, which was amazing to me. And... When I was 17, I got into a lot of legal trouble, and I, I remember it 
today, like it happened yesterday, I said to myself, I will never, ever going to drink. I'm never, ever going to drink again. I am done. I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. And I meant it. And, uh, I was living in Florida then. And my dad was now sober out in Los Angeles. So I'm like, <clears throat> I'm going to move out there. It's going to be different out there. He was sober six years. I think at the time I'm like, I'm going to go live with him. He's in this AA thing. And, you know, I'll just be a spiritual thief with him. And, um, you know, I dropped out of school and hightailed it to the coast because it's going to be different. I love the geographic too, by the way. I think the geographic is fantastic. So I go out to Los Angeles and a friend of mine in North Carolina calls it so dryety. You're sober, but you're dry. It's so dryety. And I had about three years of sobriety, of continuous sobriety. And I used to hang out in this clubhouse called the 502 Club in Covina, California. And the saying there was, who's on who at the 502? And I loved that place. And there was a whole little group of us young people. And we would go around to what we called the 13-step dances. You don't know what that is, but they will tell you. And that was our version of working with others. And... But that's, that's what AA was to me. I had a sponsor in name only. The only reason I had that sponsor was so my dad would continue to give me money every month because God knows I don't want to get a job or go to school or anything. So in order to get that cash from him, I had to have a sponsor, which he picked for me. So I didn't work with her. I called her every once in a while. I went to really unhealthy meetings, I guess you could say. Um, I'd go to meetings where crosstalk was encouraged, you know, where you could heckle the speaker. I mean, just, it was just out of control, you know, just, uh, really crazy stuff and hung out at the clubhouse and, um, and my, the quality of my life and what my life looked like was really ugly, even though I was in a meeting every day, every day. I got, that's why I know alcohol is just the symptom of what's wrong with me. There's something else going on. I'm just not right. And I got sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker in the rooms of AA, hanging out in the fellowship of AA. And, you know, I wasn't hanging with the winners or people that were, you know, really serious about a, a solid path of recovery. That's not, that's not what was attractive to me. And, um, so eventually I picked up a drink, of course, and I was leading a very ugly life, sober, very, very much still a thief and a liar and, you know, just did a lot of crazy things sober that I hadn't even done drunk yet. And, um, that was soon to change that, obviously, you know, and so I ended up picking up a drink and I had no effective mental defense against that drink. So it happened just like that. And immediately I needed to find somebody to finance that thing. So I did. I found this guy and, um, you know, I like somebody to pay my way. So that's what I found, somebody to pay my way. And he was a good man, God, God help him. He's dead now. He's now my first ex-husband who's now dead, but that's an amend story that I'll have to tell you about. But anyway, so we moved to Atlanta. 
actually we were living in Noonan, Georgia. And, um, and I was like, you know, I was drinking, but it wasn't out of control yet. And I had a little bit of guilt about drinking again after three years dry. And I remember going to a meeting, I think it was in Peachtree City, went to a meeting and, um, I said to this woman at the meeting, I said to her, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. You know, I don't, I don't know. Because my drinking did not, it wasn't out of control yet. And she said, well, you're here, aren't you? That meant nothing to me. Nothing. There was no, well, let's talk about your drinking. Let's talk about what happens when you drink. This is what defines an alcoholic. Is this you? This is how I drink. This is what I was thinking about. This is how I felt. There was none of that. It was, well, you're here at a meeting, so it must mean you're an alcoholic. And that's, you know, we have a lot more to offer to somebody who doesn't know the answer to that question than that. So I know she was trying to be helpful, but I never went back. I didn't call her never went to another meeting. And, um, and then my drinking, of course, started to progress. And I'm a great one for believing the lie if I rearrange my outsides that um, that will create some new miracle of control or happiness or whatever wholeness so I you know I tried a lot of different things one of the things one of my brave experiences was I decided I was going to be like a tree hugger granola eating sheep farmer (laughs) so I bought a bunch of sheep in Marietta yeah so I was raising sheep in Noonan, Georgia, and I'm like, this is it. I'm going to be a sheep farmer. This is like, this is the answer. It's that whole back to nature, you know, sheep shearing kind of fun. And, uh, I know this true story. And I tell people this and it's so true. It's a good thing I'm not a dude because I was drunk with my sheep. So raising sheep doesn't work. <laughs> to solve your problem. And I'm glad I'm not a guy because I probably would have tried to poke him. <laughs> Seriously. I understand how that happens. Anyway, so I had somebody tell me one time, that's just not appropriate to share from the podium, but I'm doing it anyway. Because um, it's true. Um, anyway, sheared sheep drunk. They were some nicked up bloody sheep. And I mean, it was just a mess. So raising sheep didn't work. I got this guy to marry me. That didn't work. Um, I tried different little jobby things. That didn't work. I changed groups of people. Just the whole thing. And um, and it just got progressively worse. And then uh, I said, I know what I'll do. I'll have a kid. That's what I'll do. That'll change everything. That'll force me to grow up. That'll force me to be responsible. That'll make me settle down and be a good wife and a good person. And I really believed that. So I, you know, I had a plan and I, I got pregnant, you know, and, um, I used to tell people that I was sober during my pregnancy, but that's, that's not totally true. Um, and thank God he came out normal or as normal as we can tell right now. <laughs> Who knows what the future holds. But anyway, I got pregnant and had my son, Nick. And a couple of weeks after he was born, we moved up to New York. And, you know, I hadn't had a drink for a while. We go move up to New York and I'm, I'm starting to get a little edgy, you know, 
a little, I've had enough of this sobriety crap is what's really going on because I don't like being sober for very long. It's uncomfortable. I don't like my thinking. I don't like how I feel. I just want to be somebody different and I want to feel different. And so I was a little wound tight and I went to go see the doctor and I was trying to nurse my, my oldest son. And the doctor said, wow, you're wound tight. Why don't you try a couple beers to like relax? Whole yeasty thing, let your breast melt down. It'll be great. And I was not a beer drinker. I was a liquor drinker and a wine drinker. I, I didn't drink beer. I didn't like the taste. Him. But I'm like, all right, I'll take one for the team. You know? <laughs> I'll try some beer. And that's all it took. That's all it took. I mean, and it was as if I had never stopped. I didn't pick up where, you know, I love. it was as if I had never stopped drinking. And, you know, my sponsor used to say, you know, I had, I had a bottom is when you realize that the plans that you had for your life, you realize are just not going to work out that you've given it your best shot and you failed. It didn't work. And that's exactly what the next two and a half years of my life looked like drinking. I had every intention of being a good wife. I had every intention of being a good mother, but the needed power was not there. I could not do it because alcohol came first. I came first. How I feel came first. Taking care of that came first. As much as I hate to tell you that, you know, I drove around drunk with my newborn in the car, that I would drop him off with people that weren't necessarily trustworthy and tell them I'll be back in a couple hours and then I don't come back. You know, stuff like that, stuff you, you swear you will never do. You know, we lived near a big old farm and I became like Lady Chatterley with the fucking farm hands while I'm married, you know what I mean? And, uh, I mean, just not a good wife, not a good mother. Um, I have zero moral compass when I have no connection with a creator. I mean, zero. I look just like a psychopath when I, when I'm not connected to God and and that's how I live. And that's what I do. And if you're close to me, you're going with me. And um, did that and caused all kinds of damage and uh, all kinds of hurt. And uh, um, one night I came back home and I don't know what was different about that night, but my dad called me that night and um it was a particularly humiliating evening of my behavior and the things that I do. And um, I answered the phone. And I rarely answered the phone when he called because I didn't want to hear any of that AA crap. And I didn't want him asking me about my drinking. And I picked up the phone that night, and he basically 12 sent me back into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous where I became – we were getting ready to move to Richmond, Virginia, and I became willing to um, – to go check out AA again. And I wish I could tell you that was the last night I drank, but it wasn't. Um, continued drinking for the couple of weeks that I was up there, but that that 
thought was there. So moved down to Richmond. I go to a meeting. It was on a Monday night. It was the Phoenix group. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like the Phoenix who's going to rise from the ashes. <laughs> and, you know, always a sense of drama. And I go into that meeting. And I had never had this experience before in Alcoholics Anonymous. But when I went into that meeting, I felt like I was home. I never felt like that before in AA. When they read how it works in that meeting, it was like I heard it for the first time. And I've heard how it works a gazillion times. And here's another thing. This tells you what kind of AA member I was. I had no idea how it works came out of the big book for a very long time. No idea. No clue. So anyway, I felt like I was home. I started taking some actions that are contrary to who I am which is I asked somebody to sponsor me that night. And I was serious. Like, will you help me? She ended up being committed two weeks later. <laughs> but she was perfect for me for those two weeks. <laughs> and this was a great example for me in the sense of you do not have to be in good shape here to help somebody. You do not. She was for nuts. And she took my call every day. She met me at a meeting every night. And she was just crazy. But we understood each other, you know, because I was crazy, too. So she helped me. And um, I ended up drinking two more times. The last time I was representing artists at the time, and I went up to Minneapolis, Minnesota to see a, an artist. And, um, you know, and I was serious about being in AA, wanted to be here, needed to be here, just like our book talks about, you know, having great need and desire to be here. But it's not enough. Something else has got to happen. And I thought that something else had happened, but evidently not. Because I went up to Minnesota and uh, was in that artist studio. And he just asked me, he goes, you want a drink? You want a shot of whiskey? And I'm like, yes, I do. Just like that. Yes, I do. And took that shot of whiskey. He goes, you want another one? I'm like, yeah, I do. And took that down. And then my now dead ex-husband showed up. And I was pissed that he showed up because I just had to. And he was pissed because I'd had to. But that was, I'll never forget the, I'm grateful for the experience because I have it in technicolor. The mental obsession, no clear, effective mental defense. My wanting to be sober, needing to be sober is not enough. Technicolor, the inability to not drink even when I don't want to. Technicolor, the, the craving, the physical craving. I felt like physically after just having two shots of whiskey that I was being pulled apart on the inside. I wanted more so bad I could barely stand it. And I was pissed that I couldn't keep drinking. Just furious. And I'm like, how... Do I get away from him so I can go drink? And because um, I got to finish it off, man. I got to finish this thing that's happening. And I didn't know that's what it was. I didn't know we had an allergy to alcohol. I didn't know about the obsession of the mind or any of that other stuff. But I, I remember that experience and it demonstrated all of it for me. So we were staying at a sister's house and she lived in St. Paul and, um, she had beer up in the fridge. And uh, so I was just waiting for them all to go to sleep. 
And then I was going to sneak upstairs and finish off the job, you know. And again, I wasn't a beer drinker, but that night I was. And went upstairs and started drinking. And as I was drinking, I said, God, help me. And um, something happened. I haven't had a drink since then. And, you know, God's grace. I mean, how do you explain that? I How do you explain except God's grace that something happened that separated me from alcohol at that point. I've said, God help me a million times, a million times. I don't know if I was more surrendered and I really meant it that time or I don't know. Um, Cause it sure felt like I meant it other times, but something happened and I haven't had a drink since then. And when we got back to Richmond, I, you know, started doing the, the ANA shtick and uh, going to meetings and was very grateful to be here, wanted to be here, needed to be here, going to meetings every day, sometimes twice a day. Very, very sick, very sick. I mean, AA is not known for being a hotbed of emotional and mental well-being, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and all the ways that I was living out there, I brought right on in here and, um, you know, if it was walking, I was chasing it. It doesn't matter if I'm married or not. That's immaterial to someone like me. And uh, still lying, still stealing. I was probably three years sober before I actually completely quit stealing from other people mm-hmm. and institutions. Um, but so just very, very sick. Very sick. And um, had a small anger problem. Um would have the cops called on me um, several times because if you made me, if I got mad enough, if I felt threatened enough, I mean, I'd just come after you physically. And um, the last time, and I hate to say this, that is so embarrassing. I think I was seven years sober the last time it happened, but what was the last time I had the cops called on me? Because, I mean, I would just go, go after you. And... I used my anger. Um, well, I grew up that way too. I mean, we settled stuff fighting. I grew up with brothers and you settled stuff with your fists. And, um, and that's the only way I knew how to deal with anger or fear was physically. And it took a lot of inventory and a lot of surrender to have that removed, to have that changed. I mean, I couldn't do that today if I tried. Um, but that was definitely how I came in here, was just angry. Um, you know, those blind rages over nothing. You just go crazy. So, but I came to love my anger because it's a tremendous sense of power. And also, I could use it against people. Like, if I scare you bad enough, you'll leave me alone. Um, if I scare you bad enough, you'll do what I want you to do. My anger will make you do it. So that kind of stuff. Anyway, when I was around three years sober, I was, I hit a wall and, um, I was like, this AA stuff doesn't work. Now, my experience with AA at that point was, was different than it was before. I mean, I was going to meetings, was trying to help people. 
I had a home group that I was semi-committed to. There were things I had left off my inventory, but everybody does that. Um, and there were amends that I was never, ever, ever going to make, ever. And um, definitely not paying back, you know, from all the stuff I've stolen over the years. It's not going to happen. So I had some, like, real dead set things I was not willing to do here in AA. And, you know, I didn't know they were deal breakers, you know. So anyway, I'm about three years sober, and I'm, like, not doing so hot. And I'm like, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And I met this woman through this chance meeting. And I was telling her about the state of my sobriety and my unhappiness in my life and with AA and the people in AA and how I hated them all and all this other stuff and how they're a bunch of hypocrites and, you know, God lovers and, um, just all this. I was just angry. And, um, and she looked at me, and she had one eye that kind of went that way. Um, she sounded like a bad Louisiana psychic. She was like, you're going to die. You're going to die unless you get into all parts of AA. You're going to die. And because you're a mad dog alcoholic. And just, you know, and she told a story about being 12 years sober and being crazy and, you know, waiting for her man to come home. And she was like sitting at the door with a shotgun, just waiting for the old boy to walk in the door. Cause she was going to blow him away. And, and I'm like, I, I love you. <laughs> I relate to that. And, but the woman who was telling the story was somebody completely different in spirit. And you knew it. She had been changed and it was, her whole department shouted that she was a woman with a real answer. I mean, it was, I mean, it was that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? But she got me, she got my attention with her insanity. And then seeing somebody who was not capable of doing that today. And it was obvious. And I asked her to help me. And she explained to me about our circle and triangle and about our legacies. And, um, you know, I had no idea that the directions on how to take the steps were out of the big book. Not a clue. Had no idea. The first directions that I was shown were the 11 step directions to start and end my day. And, um, you know, we talked about, was I willing to do those steps and to give myself fully to it? And that point I was desperate. And I said, okay. And she goes, you know, and she was asking me questions like, have you given up everything? Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, there's some things I haven't exactly told anybody about. And, um, mm-hmm. and then she talked about, you know, what I was doing in the fellowship of AA, how I treated my home group, how I participated in my home group. And my home group was about convenience for me at the time. If it was convenient, I'd be there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, service and what was I willing to do for Alcoholics Anonymous? How was I willing to give back to AA? And how was I willing to participate in the service level of AA? And again, it was about convenience. What's personally convenient for me? And, you know, it became more convenient if there was some hot tail that I was chasing. <laughs> but... I mean, girls can be nasty little predators too. It's not just the dudes. And uh, anyway, so 
Um, so she talked to me about that and she said, you know, are you willing to do all of this stuff? And she did not care what my answer was, which is huge. And her voice was definitely louder than my head. She scared the crap out of me, which was awesome for somebody like me at that point and where I was at. And, um, and I heard her and she, she, she saved my life. And cause I was in that place of homicidal rage and suicidal ideation. Those were my two channels at that point. That was it. And, um, so she lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and she said, you know, we're going to start at the beginning of this book. When it says write, we're going to write. When it says pray, we're going to pray. When I ask a question, we're going to answer it. When we ask you to go do something, we're going to go do it. Are you willing? And I said, yes, I'm willing. I'm willing to do all of it to the best of my ability. And so we started on that journey and um, started following the directions of the big book. And holy shit, I got better. <laughs> Who would have thought? if we follow these simple directions, things will get better. That it's not just about hanging out in the meeting and what I, I'm not trying to take away from the meetings or the fellowship of AA or what we hear discussed in meetings or from other members, but there's work that has to be done. There's things that I need to do. And we have pretty precise directions on what we need to do in order to have our own experience. And so she helped me tremendously and she took me, through the steps the first time and um you know that's when I I think I was three and a half years sober before I fully conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic of the hopeless variety because I didn't know I've been sitting in AA meetings for a long time and I had no idea no clue about this allergy obsession stuff did not know and when we're going through doctor's opinion I'm like oh Oh, I mean, lights are just going on. And in that uh, submission, there was a tremendous amount of hope for me. I started to feel like AA might really have an answer for me. That it's not all this hooey-fooey, you know, God is great bullcrap. And um, we got to the second step, and I needed um, I needed some help there. Uh, because I really had a lot of old ideas about God. I, I didn't particularly like God. Um, I thought that God played favorites, that there were the haves and the have-nots, and I was going to be a have-not for the rest of my life. And I thought that um, God, uh, that you needed to be perfect. You had to do this thing perfectly. If you didn't do it perfectly, you were not going to get yours that you had to have, like, if you just prayed just right, you'd get that spiritual juju going, and then God is going to come down, and you're going to get a great job, a lot of money, the right mate. I mean, da 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 You know, if you're doing this spiritual stuff 100%, that's when you get yours. You know, that kind of thinking, and, and that God was a withholder. I remember calling my sponsor one time, and I was all in a tizzy about something, and and my sponsor said, well, what do you think about God? I'm like, I think God is mean. I think God is vindictive and punishing. If you don't do this stuff perfect, you're going to get no relief from your head. You're going to get no relief from your insides. Your life is going to suck for forever. <laughs> and uh, my sponsor said, well, you've got God set up as a version of you. 
And I'm, I know, it was so mean, but it was so true because I put human characteristics on something that's not human. I've done that all my life. I mean, it was like, holy crap, God's not human? You know, I mean, that was like, oh, but I put, and, and I, I put all the mean characteristics on God, you know, the nasty ones, you know, when I'm not getting mine, then God's a real mean lover, you know? <laughs> and so anyway, with stuff like that, I started to have a different experience and become open-minded and, and really start to look at what these spiritual terms mean to me and, you know, stuff like that through that process of just working through we agnostics with another alcoholic and, you know, got to and have been revealed more old ideas, which, you know, it sucks just as much now as it did back then. Taking a look at those and surrendering those. I was talking to John about that in the car. I hate you. <laughs> anyway, um, so, Got to the third step, got to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. I'm like, well, I'm afraid that God is going to want me to move down to South America. <laughs> He's going to want me to be a nun, and I'm never going to be able to have sex or money again in my life. And my sponsor wisely said, well, if that's what happens to you, that's a lot better than what you got going on currently. And that was a fact. That was true, because my life was a train wreck. I couldn't argue with that. That would be better than what I currently had going on. So I became willing there, even though I didn't know what it was, was going to look like. And it's terrifying to trust something um, that you cannot see, control, direct. You know, you can get into the all the, you know, nice little spiritually fit people in AA and are like, God's in each one of us. He's deep down within. And I'm like, Okay. I mean, I just, I bristled with antagonism, you know? And um, I just, I, I just didn't, couldn't get it how they seemed to be getting it. I'm like, that's why I thought God was mean, like he was withholding his little goodness, his little goodies from me. Like he bestowed him on these other people that I definitely thought were unworthy. I mean, I was definitely better than they were. And he's giving them the spiritual goodies. Where's my spiritual goodies? So anyway, get on to inventory. And like I said, there were things I was never, ever, ever going to share. And that kind of makes me want to pee. Anyway, <laughs> it's like Pavlov's dog. You know what I'm saying? So I'm easily distracted. I probably would have been diagnosed with a lot of stuff when I was younger. You know, is that a squirrel? Something shiny. Anyway. Um, so I'd never written four-column inventory. And then when I did, I, I came across this one inventory. And I'm not belittling this. Well, I guess maybe I am. And no, no, I'm not. Yeah, I, no, I'm not. Yeah, no, no, I'm not. So it was just what was carried to me. But it was like the little check mark thing. You, you just check where you were wrong. Were you selfish? Try are you dishonest with Jack? So, which I thought was great work on my part. I mean, great work. Anyway, so, you know, Camille, first time I'm writing inventory, she's, like, showing me, like, who, the why. She goes, it can't be more than eight words long. you got to get to the core resentment. I don't want to hear a novel. Get to the core resentment of what you're angry about. 
write extended third column. I want you to write out how your different parts of self were affected with this. And you're going to be praying up and doing all kinds of stuff, asking God to help you set aside other people entirely. And you're just going to resolutely look for your own mistakes. And I mean, I'm literally like, oh my God, what an order. It was overwhelming to me. And um, so anyway, so, but I did it. I did it to the best of my ability and brought God into it. And, um, and I had the wildest experiences. I started writing out my inventory. I started writing fourth column. I started experiencing these tremendous, tremendous amounts of forgiveness towards people that I never, ever thought I could forgive and compassion. And then truly understanding, um, that I'm capable of the same stuff. If I've done the same stuff, if not worse in some cases, and also I'm capable of the same stuff. And I mean, I'm capable of some pretty nasty stuff. And so I started to see that. I'll tell you something else too, that helped me tremendously. There were a couple of resentments that I was just really holding on to. And I was really getting a lot of juice and I never seemed to be able to get completely free. And what it was is I called, you know, my sponsor, and I'm reading that little inventory over the phone against my, you know, arch enemy in AA. She was my nemesis, you know, and I needed to take her down. But anyway, I wrote, I, you know, I used to hear people say, you know, people you resent the most are your greatest spiritual teachers. And I'm like, I hate you for even saying that to me, but it's true. Because, you know, I don't want them to be great at anything. I want them to suffer. And... Um, so anyway, but, so I call my sponsor, I'm reading this inventory that I've written again, same resentment again, and, uh, towards this woman again. And, um, I got to the fourth column. I said, well, this is my part. My sponsor goes, well, where in the big book does it say my part? And I'm like, I don't know. It's gotta be in there. Cause you're in meetings or you did in Richmond. You're in meetings all the time. And my sponsor said, you, this this is about disregarding the other person involved entirely and entirely means entirely. That means they no longer have a part. As long as somebody else has a part, you never have to take full responsibility for anything. There's still a little bit of victim status going on here and you can never be truly free with that individual unless you are just looking at your wrongs. And that was like a huge awakening for me because I still held everybody a little bit responsible for when things were not going well. I hate you, John Shea. <laughs> <laughs> we're just having this conversation in the car. Anyway, so went on and, and wrote that inventory and, you know, wrote fear inventory and conduct inventory, wrote out an ideal and um, fifth step that first, you know, have fifth steps many times with multiple people. The sponsorship line I come from is, um, you know, uh, as many people, not as many people, but, you know, it's encouraged to read your inventory to more than one person because we're such, I am such a liar and a, a actor. You know, this is what I want you to see. But the reality of what I'm really thinking, how I'm really living, and keep that hidden from you. Um, anyway, so that's been really beneficial for me to read that inventory to more than one individual. I don't do that every time, but most times I do. 
whether it's with women I sponsor or a friend or a sponsor or whatever, I might grace John tomorrow with some of my inventory. <laughs> it's a real honor, you know. Anyway, um, you know, doing six and seven, I've always had powerful experiences there when I actually take the time to do it. Um, I think with the 12 and 12 nails it, that six and seven truly does separate the men from the boys, the girls from the women. I've been profoundly changed in those two steps alone. But it's only happened for me when I've been willing to spend the time, to spend the hour, to honestly look at what I've done, how I've harmed people, what I'm genuinely asking God to remove from me, and being honest about what um, what I'm not really willing to let go of or what I'm not sure or I'm afraid to let go of. You know, and I used to have this idea like, oh, you better be willing to let go of all those character defects because if you are not willing to let go of all those character defects, you know, God's going to come down with the character defect thunderbolt and you're going to be smiting, you know, and you're going to burn, baby. And your life is going to get really, really difficult until that will force you to be willing. And, you know, I have found that not to be true at all, that we do have a very merciful creator. Um, so love six and seven had to go out and make amends. Um, I had a lot of amends that I, uh, was afraid to make some of the first amends that I had to make, uh, that really frightened me though, were not with people. It was around money. Um, I did not want to pay back that money that I had stolen, taken, whatever did not want to do it. And um, thank God for strong sponsorship because my sponsor said, you took it out of the world, you're putting it back in the world, either directly or in some other way, but we're trying the direct way first. And it was so humbling, so humbling. At the time, I think I was making $13,000 a year, barely afford to feed myself. And my sponsor's like, you got to pick one and start. And I had all the excuses in the world of why that was not feasible for me at that time. And, you know, sponsorship doesn't give a crap. They know if you do this thing, your life is going to get wider. And your spiritual life is going to get wider and deeper. And that's exactly what happened. As I became willing and started making, I mean, sometimes I was writing one dollar checks because that's all I could do. <clears throat> that was all I could do. But pretty soon I started changing. Things started changing. I wasn't even aware of it. This is just looking back in hindsight. You know, then I was able to pay five dollar checks and I did it. Then it was twenty, then it was fifty, then it was a hundred, then it was thousand. I mean it just it showed up as long as I was and this took years. This was not an overnight matter at all. But as long as I stayed willing to make amends, the ways and means to make them always, without fail, showed up. And I never, ever went without, ever. And um, there were a couple times where I had to consult with my now dead ex-husband about if I go make this amends, it's possible I could go to jail. Are you good if I do this? With, because we had a young son, you know, are you good 
with this because you're going to be on your own. And um, he was like, yeah, go do it. He's probably like, sweet, I'll be rid of her for a little while. <laughs> I hope you go to the plank, you know. Anyway, um, so, but, I mean, that we do what the book talks about. There's very specific directions there. You know, we consult with others if other people are going to be impacted when we go to make those amends. To tell you about my amends with him. So, him and I divorced when I was about a year sober. And um, when I went to make amends to him, you know, I said, Steve, this is where I was wrong. These are the things I did. This is where I think I harmed you. You know, is there anything I've left off? You know, and he tells me a couple of things. And I said, what can I do to make this right? Um, and uh, Or is there anything else that you want to tell me about that? And he goes, I just want you to know that the four years I was with you were the worst four years of my life. <laughs> I mean, that's not a winning recommendation, right? <laughs> and it knocked the arrogance right out of me and that idea that just leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody but myself and really starting to understand the, I'm so self-centered. I truly did not understand or see the harm I was causing other people. I just didn't see. I just did not feel that acutely at all. And when he said that to me, I mean, it totally got my attention and just, you know, knocked me down. I said, wow. And, um, I was really grateful to him for being honest with me. So anyway, as a, as a result of making those amends and trying to be the best ex-wife and ex-wife-in-law I could be to his then current wife, um, when he was dying, he ended up getting lymphatic cancer. When he was dying and was in the hospital, um, wife number four called me up and said, come down here, we need you down here. And that's all because of alcohol smoke. I couldn't, nobody wanted me anywhere. I mean, I, I am the tornado through people's lives. And it was a huge honor to be asked to come down there, to be of support to his family then, you know, the woman he had married and her kids and uh, my our own son. And when he left this world, I mean, I was holding his hand and kissing his neck when he left this world. And that was the man who told me, you know, the time I was with you was the worst four years of my life. So to go from that to being there with him as he's leaving was powerful. And um, that's a testimony to the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and how we get changed here as a result of being willing to work the steps and just submit to something other than ourselves. I mean, my life changed profoundly. Who I was as a human being changed profoundly just from getting a relationship with my creator and clearing away enough wreckage so that could happen. And that was what it was all about. That's what changed me. That was it. And who would have thought that it'd be, you know, a relationship with God that would change us so deeply. I, it was the last thing I ever thought. I thought the right money, the right man, and enough money and good sex was going to make me happy. Seriously. But that was, you know, trifecta beyond trifectas. And, um, and I was wrong. So anyway, um, so, you know, have made amends, very busy in Alcoholics Anonymous. Is it time for me to stop? I have my glasses on, so I can't see over there. 
Is it time to stop? Got very, very busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, things were going really, really good for a long, long period. Um, outside stuff was phenomenal. You know, I'm totally uneducated and started making more money than someone like me should be making, and um, had a, another son. Um, very busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsoring a ton of women, um, doing all kinds of stuff. And then I hit 20 and all hell broke loose. And it has been uh, an interesting uh, four years. Um, you know, right when I was on the verge of becoming the queen of AA, <laughs> this all happened, which I thought was grossly unfair. And, uh, you know, God's at me again. You know, God's trying to take me down and I've arrived, you know, what's going on? And I've been a good person. What's going on? Why is God doing this to me? I mean, look at everything I've done for your kids. <laughs> I talk about you all the time. I talk about how you've changed my life. I talk about how much I love you. Why are you doing this to me? Same, same thing, but different argument. And, uh, so anyway, it's just been a whole nother series of surrenders that's not done yet, but I think we're reaching the dawn um, of every single area of my life. Not one area has been left um, unturned. Every area, my AA life, my image in AA, the women I sponsor, my relationship with God, old ideas, what I do for money, how I make money, how I show up for work, how do I show up in relationships, the whole kit and caboodle. And um, everything has had to go under the knife again. And it sucks, man. But I'm still sober. I'm here with you guys. I'm grateful to be here. And thanks for letting me be here. I'm done. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.